Episode 26 of Say Hello to My Little Friend, a.k.a. The Beretta Cast, the New Zealand podcast that covers issues in philosophy of religion, philosophy generally, theology, politics, social issues, and frankly, anything that takes my fancy. I'm your host, Glenn Peoples. This episode, episode 26, is called In Search of the Soul. After episodes on politics and something like theology, I'm moving into more philosophical territory today. This is part one of a series on the mind-body problem. I initially announced on my blog that this would be a three-part series, but as it often happens, this thing's taken on a whole life of its own. So it's probably going to last for four episodes and not three. Even then, the subject is so complex and many-faceted that I can only hope to deliver something introductory in nature. But I hope it's not too boring and I hope you find it interesting nonetheless. The mind-body problem is the philosophical problem of explaining what the mind is in relation to the body. Or another way of putting it is what kind of beings or what it is we are or what we are made of. Is the mind an entity or some kind of thing independent of the body? Is it part of the body? Is it a product of the body? Or is it a function of the body or something else altogether? When you ask those questions, you're engaging in philosophy of mind. I'll start by looking at the issue from the point of view of philosophy, analytical philosophy, but the final episode, which is likely to be the fourth episode, will look at the issue from a biblical perspective. By far, says philosopher William Hasker, and I quote, the most influential mind-body theory in Western civilization is mind-body dualism, end quote. Dualism. So what's that? Well, there are a few different types of dualism, including the one that Hasker has in mind when he wrote those words. Dualism, as you might be able to gather from the sound of the word, like the Greek or the Latin root duo, or the Spanish dos, or our word dual or duet. Dualism is all about seeing things in twos. Dualism, in its traditional and best-known form, presents us with a picture of human nature that makes a very sharp distinction between body and mind, or body and soul, depending on who you're talking to, a philosopher or a theologian. There are two different substances. That's the point. One of them is physical, one of them is not, and the two shall never meet. I'm talking about the most traditional version of true, of dualism here. Because I think that this traditional view exists at one rather extreme end of the spectrum, I'm going to start there and gradually, as this series progresses, work my way along the spectrum, reaching the other end in a couple of episodes' time. So we're talking now about Cartesian or Platonic substance dualism. That, that's, those are various names for the position. The first two names of people that come to mind when explaining mind-body dualism are those of the ancient Greek philosopher Plato and also one of the great thinkers of the Enlightenment, René Descartes. It's no accident that dualism is sometimes called Platonic dualism or Cartesian dualism, named after Plato and Descartes. 
in this particular variety of dualism, the mind or soul is a substance added to the body. No part of the mind is grounded in any physical organ. In the view of Plato himself, the soul may have existed in previous lives, being associated with different bodies in the past and possibly with different bodies in the future, but not so for Descartes, and not so in the view of contemporary dualists of the Western world. Although, of course, that view, reincarnation, is still alive. That is a part of, say, Eastern dualism in parts of Asia, but I'm not going to be discussing that view here. It's important to understand something about Western Platonic dualism. When we talk about the mind being another substance that is added to a body, whatever you do, don't think of a scene out of the movie Ghostbusters, where the soul, or the ghost in this case after the body has died, is some sort of three-dimensional apparition made of stuff, a vapor, uh, perhaps ectoplasm, whatever that is, and it hovers in space. And when you're alive, it travels around in space with the body when you walk around. And when the body dies, the soul physically moves out of the body and travels through space to another location. That is not at all what traditional Platonic dualism teaches. That's not what contemporary Western dualists believe. The mind according to this form of dualism, has no physical dimensions. It's not physical at all. That means it's not extended in space. It can't hover. To use the terminology of Descartes, the mind is active, unextended thinking. Notice the word unextended. While the body is passive, extended, and unthinking. The mind has no physical location or physical dimensions. If it did, then it would be physical and not non-physical. This type of dualism has been the dominant form of dualism that has prevailed in Christian thought for many centuries. I may as well say right at the outset that I think that's a shame. I'm not a platonic dualist. And by the time this series is over, I hope you'll see why. Aside from any biblical considerations, which I'll come to in the final episode in this series, what reasons have philosophers given for adopting traditional Christian, Cartesian, Platonic dualism. Well, one argument has been the argument from the power of thought. The th this thought that the mind is the active thing that thinks, recall uh, the definition given earlier that the mind is active, unextended thinking. This thought that the mind is the active thing that thinks, while the body is the passive, unthinking lump of stuff, has actually been used in the arsenal of arguments for this type of dualism, as it has seemed to some people, and maybe does still seem to some people, that the body not only doesn't think, but that it is absolutely obvious that the body could not think, that it is ludicrous, just crazy to think of the body thinking. About, about a century ago now, theologian David Clark stated in a matter-of-fact fashion, in fact, this, by the way, was a syllabus at Princeton Theological Seminary, he said, mental phenomena are not properties of matter and must be attributes of substance which is not matter. He adds, and I quote again, self-consciousness is, sorry, self-consciousness not only reflects on its past, but it is conscious that it is reflecting. Consciousness transcends the power of matter. Now, he doesn't argue for that conclusion. He uses it as a premise, supposing that any sensible theologian would grant it as obviously true. 
Such was the mindset from which he worked, and he assumed others would work. 17th century philosopher Blaise Pascal, going back a bit now, he didn't mince words when he declared, and I quote, well, I quote the translation, there is nothing so inconceivable as the idea that matter knows itself. Okay, so it was just unthinkable, obviously crazy for these people to think of matter as thinking. It had to be something immaterial. Hence the argument from thought for a disembodied, no, not disembodied, an immaterial, sorry, mind. I think it's fair to say that the approach that just writes off thinking matter as impossible or inconceivable is largely, not exclusively, but largely a thing of the past. And more importantly, it is something that people cannot get away with saying now because we no longer live in a philosophical climate where you can expect all of your peers to just let an assertion like that slide. If you want to argue that matter could never think, then please go right ahead. But labeling it inconceivable is not an argument. The fact is, there have been plenty of very competent thinkers, and not just in our age, but in ages gone by, to whom such an idea has not occurred, or at least to whom it has not seemed persuasive. Another Enlightenment thinker who did not agree with Blaise Pascal, John Locke, for example, was persuaded that, and I quote, we possibly shall never be able to know whether any merely material being thinks or not. For it is impossible for us, by the contemplation of our own ideas without revelation, to discover whether omnipotency, that is God, has not given to some systems of matter, fitly disposed, a power to perceive and think, or else joined and fixed to matter, so disposed, a thinking immaterial substance it being, in respect of our notions, not much more remote from our comprehension to conceive that God can, if he pleases, superadd to matter a faculty of thinking, than that he should superadd to it another substance with a faculty of thinking, since we know not wherein thinking consists, nor to which sort of substances the Almighty has been pleased to give that power, which cannot be in any created thing, but merely by the good pleasure and bounty of the Creator." Locke's comment that we know not wherein thinking consists is something that was true when he said it, but in fact we know a lot more now than we did in Locke's time. And what we have learned does not help this particular dualist argument that Locke is replying to. I want to set that aside for now, however. Locke's point here is that it is no more difficult to imagine God giving matter the power to think than it is to imagine God adding a non-material substance that thinks. Just changing the language and talking about a, a new kind of substance doesn't make the process of thinking less baffling or somehow easier to explain. In fact, you could argue that dualism makes it harder to explain because we've got this thing, I know not what, that does all the thinking for our bodies. If the dualist finds no difficulty in conceiving of God creating non-material entities that think, then it isn't clear why he should find it peculiar that material entities could have been created with the same faculty. And thus, reasoned Locke, and I quote, All the great ends of morality and religion are well enough secured without philosophical proofs of the soul's immortality. And he was just referring to substance dualism in, in general, because the two ideas were equated, the immortality of the soul and substance dualism. Uh, contemporary philosopher Clifford Williams reflects on Locke's argument, and he calls it, 
the parity thesis because it's basically the claim that there is parity between a thinking piece of matter and a thinking piece of non-matter. He notices the propositions as follows in Locke. 1. God can make matter think. 2. This is actually the basis for 1. There is no contradiction in the assertion that matter thinks. Now, I'm not listing these as though they're presented as a succinct argument. I'm just, or rather, Clifford Williams is just filtering out the propositions as they are found in Locke. Now, if we add to thinking properties such as feeling, choosing, etc., and whatever is required for a being to be a moral and religious entity, then we arrive at the claim that, three, God can make a purely material being to be a moral and religious entity. Now, obviously, this isn't meant as a refutation of mind-body dualism. It's no such thing. But it does remove one important argument from dualism, and it makes physicalism just as plausible as far as the argument from thought is concerned, or at least no less mysterious. I think, too, that the argument from thought is a potentially dangerous type of argument for Christian philosophers to engage in. Why do I say that? Well, here's why. And this has relevance for Christian apologetics more generally. This argument developed in a time when we knew very little about the brain. We, we weren't completely ignorant, but we didn't know that much. And it arose because of a kind of incredulity and self-professed ignorance. It says, the argument says, we don't know how matter could possibly think. We just don't know. We haven't figured it out. We find it inconceivable that it could do so. Therefore, it can't. And there must be something non-material that does the thinking. That's really the gist of the argument. This is precisely the type of reasoning that is sometimes called a God of the gaps argument. There was a large gap in our understanding of thought, so an immaterial soul, which was equally hard to understand, was pressed into the gap, giving the impression that we now understand thought. Now that's a terrible way for Christians to announce that they have an argument for one of their beliefs. The impression it gives only confirms the very worst stereotypes that sceptical hucksters like Richard Dawkins present, where he says that for religious people, scientific difficulties serve as a welcome relief and excuse to stop thinking and investigating, rather than a challenge to start thinking and investigating even more. Now that's generally untrue of Christian thinkers, but when we use arguments like this, we confirm that stereotype. The fact is, a lot has happened since this argument from thought was proposed. And in the last half century in particular, we have seen incredible advances in the study of the brain and how it works, the field that we call neuroscience. We know that there are specific parts of the brain that process happiness, sadness, analytical thought, fear, creative expression, and so forth. These are known facts now. We know that damage to the brain can cause permanent personality changes or loss of intellectual ability. There was a time when we didn't know those things, and much of the rhetorical force of the argument from thought is force that only held sway during that time, or at least the sway was generated during that time, and it kind of hung around a bit. Now, when someone says that the brain can't account for thought, rather than intuitively seeming to be correct, Actually, they intuitively seem to be wrong, and they can't bank on the popular support for their claim that they might once have enjoyed had they lived a few hundred years ago. Now they've actually got to come up with an argument for their claim. Okay. Now, I want to, I want to be realistic about what I've just said. 
I haven't refuted any argument. I haven't refuted the argument from thought, and I don't pretend that I have. All I've said is that much of the initial obviousness of this argument has now evaporated in the as the years have gone by. But the argument is still there to be defended if anyone is up to the task, and the task has been taken up. Hence the you know, flourishing field of philosophy of mind containing a number of works from contemporary dualists. The argument from knowledge has morphed into what is sometimes called the argument from qualia, a word that's related to qualities or qualitative aspects. The argument from qualia, which is a fairly kind of nebulous argument without hard edges. I'd call it vague, but that might seem a little pejorative, and that's not my intention in saying that. It's an argument that I think could be clearer, but it's an argument, and it's seen by some philosophers as a formidable argument for dualism. So what are qualia? Yes, I say are, not is, because qualia is actually a plural term. The single is quale. Well, qualia are the subjective aspects of human consciousness. They are our experiences of, say, the color of a red rose, uh, as opposed to the propositional knowledge of the physical properties of redness. The two different things. One is an experience, and the other is knowledge of the properties that make something cause that experience. The feeling of sorrow or the sensation of pain, these are other examples of qualia. All the facts about how nerves transmit sensation is not going to tell us what a sensation feels like. The actual feeling of that sensation is qualia. So since qualia presents us with something more than just the physical knowledge, that is the true propositions about the physical properties of red light or how nerves work to generate pain, qualia present us with uniquely mental or perhaps psychological knowledge, not physical knowledge, or at least some sort of fact that is not physical. The mind, therefore, cannot be entirely physical, so the argument goes. That's, in a, in a very small nutshell, the argument from qualia. The trouble, I think, is that we are still dealing with an argument that sits at an intuitive level and draws attention to our ignorance without really mounting a detailed positive case, making an appeal that sounds a bit like, wow, qualia, isn't that weird? That's, that's how I see this argument being presented. I suppose the existence of qualia from the standpoint of physical analysis is pretty weird. But who says that substance dualism is the answer? Philosophy of mind is a complex enough subject that you could spend an entire semester covering it and still not be a specialist, so I realize that I'm not going to give the argument the time or depth that it deserves. But the way I see it... All versions of dualism and physicalism, for that matter, are trying to provide models compatible with qualia. Trying very hard. Take, for example, non-reductive physicalism, a view that I'll get around to discussing in probably part three of this series. Just correcting my spelling here. Okay, I'm kind of anal about that kind of thing. Non-reductive physicalism. It looks at the existence of qualia, it sees the apparent gap between having all the physical facts at one's disposal, one's disposal and having the experiential knowledge of red, and it concludes that 
This should be explained by saying that even though knowledge is only possible because of the brain, we ought to deny that all of the causal forces in human mental activity and behavior can be accounted for on the basis of neurophysiology alone, neurochemistry, and ultimately physics. In other words, we should deny reductionism. Now, I'm not going to preempt my discussion of non-reductive physicalism just now, but I will note that if a substance dualism were to jump in at this point, and put his finger in the non-reductive physicalist's face and go, well, come on, how could that be? How would that work? Account for yourself. Well, I think that would be a case of people in glass houses throwing stones. Just saying that the explanation of qualia is a non-physical thing called the mind or soul doesn't really give an explanation at all. How, pray tell my, my dualist friend, does the non-physical mind take physical phenomenon and produce non-physical experiences? Taking the explanation out, out of the physical world does not absolve you of the normal duty to provide an explanation. If the dualist wants to say, as he is quite justified in saying, well, I just don't know, then the argument from qualia loses a great deal of its rhetorical force because it's no more an argument for dualism than it is for any other model of the mind. My own personal stance on the argument from qualia is that it starts from poorly formed claims about different kinds of knowledge. In the literature, it, the discussion centers around the idea of physical versus non-physical knowledge. I think that's wrong. I don't think we should do that. I think in terms of propositional knowledge and non-propositional knowledge. Take the color of a red rose, which seems to be a popular example in discussions on this issue. Neither knowledge of the physical processes and properties involved, nor knowledge of the experience of seeing redness, can be said from the outset to be physical or non-physical. It really depends on the subject of the knowing, who or what is doing the knowing. It's physical knowledge if the person who knows is a physical thing, and that applies to propositional knowledge and experiential knowledge. It's non-physical knowledge if the person who knows is a non-physical thing. In other words, whether we are right to think of any of our knowledge as physical or not just depends on whether substance dualism is true or not. So I think that really, to use the argument from qualia as an argument for dualism is to subtly beg the question. It kind of assumes dualism from the outset without saying so, perhaps without even realizing it. Now before moving on, one thing that I want to be clear about is that I am not at all saying that supernatural explanations are never acceptable when natural explanations seem inadequate. Not that the mind is necessarily supernatural, but this concern does seem apparent to me when writing this argument, writing about it and critiquing it. I want to, want to clarify here. Each such case needs to be considered on a case-by-case -case basis. Take, for example, uh, the moral argument which I've covered in my podcast before, which says that brute nature, as best we can tell, cannot give us moral facts, therefore we need God to do it. Now, I don't think that is a lazy-brained argument from ignorance of the kind that I have denounced here. That's because morality is, to, is best construed in terms of a purpose and a will, and it's not merely the case that unintelligent nature is vague or shows no signs of having such a thing, but we might discover it in the future, what I say is, in principle, unintelligent nature could not have this kind of thing. So not every appeal to the non-physical or non-natural in the face of 
inadequacies in natural explanations should be regarded as suspect. Hopefully I've explained, however, why these particular arguments about philosophy of mind, arguments from ignorance, are suspect. Another argument, the next one I'm going to move on to in favour of dualism, is called the argument from introspection, or at least that's what I've decided to call it, the argument from introspection. According to philosopher Stuart Getz, he just knows that he is an immaterial mind in a material body. He just knows this. He writes, and I quote, Although I am unclear about whether I have a right to believe certain things about myself, it is clear to me that I just find myself having such beliefs. And it is not possible for me to stop having them unless I am provided with good reason to think that they are questionable or false. One of the things that I as an ordinary person believe about myself is that I am a soul that is distinct from my physical material body. Hence, I am what philosophers and theologians term a substance dualist, or more simply, a dualist. Now, Dr. Getz then reassures us that because dualism is just so ordinary, lots of other people believe it too. It is, he says, by quoting another philosopher, good common sense. It's so normal, he says, that J.K. Rowling can write believably about the de Dementors in the Harry Potter books as inflicting the worst possible fate onto people by sucking out their souls. And it's so normal that when a non-dualist, John Searle, gave lectures in India, several members of the audience assured him that he simply must be mistaken, because they themselves had been incarnated in previous lives as frogs or elephants. Dr. Getz, almost amazingly, proceeds on to his next paragraph then, saying, Given, then, that ordinary people are dualists, and he continues, ordinary. Yeah, because wizards and people who used to be frogs are ordinary. It's not the most promising start to an argument, I'll say that, but there is an argument here. Apart from the possibly counterproductive illustrations that he uses, you know, illustrations that make people switch off rather than listen, he's drawing on what is in some contexts a very good argument. But an argument for what? Although he doesn't use the term here, he uses it later in the chapter and elsewhere in other things that he's written, he believes and is saying that substance dualism, the belief that he is an immaterial being inhabiting a material body, is a properly basic belief. Now, for those who aren't familiar with the terms here, it's an epistemological term that is a term to do with the study of knowledge. Properly basic beliefs are ones that were not held or are not held on the basis of evidence presented to you and for which you need not have good arguments in order to rationally believe. They are beliefs that are impossible for the believer to deny or which are self-evident. One key ingredient is that in many instances the fact that is believed, though the thing you believe, is itself the very thing that makes the belief justified. Take Plantinga's famous explanation, that's, by the way, Alvin Plantinga, the contemporary philosopher of religion. Take Plantinga's famous explanation of properly basic belief in God. Let's say you believe that God exists, and the reason you believe this is that, as the Bible says, 
All people can naturally perceive God's existence through creation. And when our minds are working as they should, like properly functioning TV sets, they receive the signal that God is there. Or perhaps you've had some sort of powerful religious experience where God has directly communicated with you, maybe imparted the knowledge of his love for you or something like that. Now, if these facts are facts, that is, if those things really are true, you really did have that experience or your mind functioning properly really did communicate the fact of God's existence to you, then the fact that they are true is what justifies the belief that they are true. You see what I mean? Beliefs like that are basic beliefs. Now, if substance dualism is true, can the substance dualist, dualist defend his position by saying that his belief that he is an immaterial soul is a basic belief? Can he do that? Can he take that line of defense? Well, I'm not sure that he could. But secondly, that's not really all that relevant. I'm not sure that he could because it's not clear to me exactly what it is about being an immaterial soul that would, as long as everything is working correctly, produce belief in dualism. Do perceptions, beliefs, experiences and so forth have a non-physical feel to them? How does Getz know what one of those things feels like? What's he comparing it to? But secondly... It wouldn't be very relevant here, even if a dualist can have a basic belief that dualism is, is true, if it is true, of course. Maybe he could, but that's not much of an argument for dualism. That will only tell us that if dualism is true, then substance dualism is a justified belief, because it's a basic belief. But what do you do when someone like Kevin Corcoran, who was a non-dualist, comes along and replies, as he did in the same book as Dr. Getz, by saying... Stuart Getz is an ordinary guy, and I'm quoting now. Stuart Getz is an ordinary guy. He is a dualist, after all. Although I believe that lots of ordinary people are dualists, I believe that I am, in the, in the relevant sense, an ordinary guy, too. But I'm no dualist. And as it turns out, uh, Kevin Corcoran and philosopher Peter van Inwagen, for that matter, think that their belief that they are physical beings is a basic belief. Well, maybe, maybe not. But this introspective talk about basic beliefs is not the kind of thing to engage in when you're trying to persuade people to adopt your beliefs. So, when it comes to the argument from introspection, well, that's just an argument that you're justified in holding it if it's true. I'm not even sure that that argument is successful, but even if it is, it still depends on whether or not it's true. We want to know if it's true or not. So, I'm going to turn to what is the last argument for dualism that I'm going to look at in today's episode. And that argument is called the argument from the unity of consciousness. And I'll start by quoting from philosopher René Descartes. He says, and I quote, When I consider the mind, or consider myself insofar as I am merely a thinking thing, I cannot detect any parts within myself. I understand myself to be something single and complete. The whole mind seems to be united to the whole body, but not by a uniting of parts to parts, as the following consideration shows. If a foot or arm or any other part of the body is cut off, nothing is thereby taken away from the mind. 
as for the faculties of willing, of understanding, of sensory perception, and so on, these are not parts of the mind, since it is one and the same mind that wills, understand, and understands and perceives. They are, I repeat, not parts of the mind, because they are properties or powers of it. By contrast, any corporeal thing, that is, any physical thing, can easily be divided into parts in my thought. And this shows me that it is really divisible. The one argument would be, sorry, this one argument would be enough to show me that the mind is completely different from the body, even if I did not already know as much from other considerations. Now, what was Descartes getting at? The point here, as has been reiterated by philosophers since Descartes, is that my hand can do something that my foot does not. My ear can do something that my elbow does not, but my mind cannot be divided up into different experiences this way. When I experience a dog barking right in front of me on a hot summer's day, I do not experience the image of a dog barking and separately perceive the sound of barking and then separately perceive that it is a hot day and so forth. I perceive them as one unified conscious state all experienced by one unified simple thing. Perception, desire, will, etc. are not divisions in the mind, they are all functions of one mind. This unity is what philosophers have come to call the unity of consciousness. How exactly does the unity of consciousness show that the mind, or the thing upon which the mind depends, is not physical? Well, in Descartes' argument, that's really the proverbial gorilla sitting in the room, I think. Maybe the mind is not simple, and it's made up of components after all, but you cannot divide the mind without destroying it. What if the mind exists because of a delicate, carefully connected and functioning set of physical systems, which, if separated, will not work? Something like the brain. It didn't take long for philosophers to see this obvious flaw in the argument. The first and perhaps the greatest was Immanuel Kant, as summarized in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, and I quote, For Kant, that consciousness is unified, tells us nothing about what sorts of entities minds are, including whether they are made out of matter. Sorry, whether or not they are made out of matter. He argues that the achievement of unified consciousness by a system of components acting together would be no less mysterious than its being achieved by something that is simple, i.e. has no components. Quite so, I agree. What's more, Descartes' admitted failure to perceive the complexity of the mind is not the same as a perception that the mind is simple. Let me explain that. He says, in a nutshell, I can conceive of how things like bodies can be divided up, but I cannot conceive of how the mind can be divided up. In other words, I can't conceive of how we could divide it up like a complex thing. Therefore, it's simple. Now, that's a mistake. Failure to, to conceive of something's complexity is not the same as actually perceiving its simplicity. It could just mean that you failed or you didn't have the resources at your disposal to make accurate enough perceptions. Naughty Descartes. Neuroscience has plenty to tell us about whether or not the mind is simple or complex and potentially divisible, for that matter. 
Think about brain bisection operations. Here's a description of the procedure of brain bisection and its consequences. I'm quoting at length now from that same article from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which is a fantastic resource, by the way. It's free, it's online. Anyway, here we go. Talking about brain bisection operations, and I quote, In these operations, the corpus callosum is cut. The corpus callosum is a large strand of about 200 million neurons running from one hemisphere to the other. When present, it is the chief channel of communication between the hemispheres, you know, the two halves of the brain that look like walnuts or lungs. These operations, done mainly in the 1960s but recently reintroduced in a somewhat modified form, are a last-ditch effort to control certain kinds of severe epilepsy by stopping the spread of seizures from one lobe of the cerebral cortex to the other lobe. In normal life, these patients show little effect of the operation. In particular, their consciousness of their world and themselves remains as unified as it was prior to the operation. How this can be has puzzled a lot of people. Even more interesting for our purpose, however, is that under certain laboratory conditions, these patients, patients, these patients behave as though two centers of consciousness have been created in them. The original unity seems to be gone, and two centers of unified consciousness seem to have replaced it, each associated with one of the two cerebral hemispheres. Here are a couple of examples of the kinds of behavior that prompt that assessment. The human retina, that's in the eye, the human retina is split vertically in such a way that the left half of each retina is primarily hooked up to the left hemisphere of the brain, and the right half of each retina is primarily hooked up to the right hemisphere of the brain. Now, suppose that we flash the word taxable in front of a on a screen in front of a brain bisected patient in such a way that the letters tax hit the left side of the retina, the letters able the right side, and we put measures in place to ensure that the information hitting each half of the retina goes only to one lobe and is not fed to the other. If such a patient, I'm still quoting by the way, if such a patient is asked what word is being shown, the mouth usually controlled by the left hemisphere, will say tax, while the hand controlled by the hemisphere that does not control the mouth, usually the left hand and the right hemisphere, will write able. Or, if the hemisphere that controls a hand, usually the left hand, but not speech, is asked to do, asked to do arithmetic, in a way that does not penetrate to the left hemisphere that controls speech, and the hands are shielded from the eyes, the mouth will insist that it is not doing arithmetic, has not even thought of arithmetic today, and so on, while the appropriate hand is busily doing arithmetic. I found that fascinating. It's easy, but perhaps a little bit simplistic. By the way, that's the end of the quote. It's easy, but I think very simplistic, to think that the mind is simple and indivisible when we spend our lives as just one person, that is, nobody ever tries to divide us up. And we live a life with no brain dysfunctions or injuries. Now, under those, I guess I might say, rather idyllic and uninterrupted circumstances, 
we actually never get the opportunity to find out if the mind is divisible or not. But given the theoretical possibility of complete brain splitting, essentially dividing a person in two, and let's say getting the required body mass for two bodies from the existing body, dividing it in two, so you've got two people, the claim that the mind is simple and indivisible, much less obviously so, is actually one of the most doubtful arguments ever for Cartesian dualism. Let's call this the brain sore rebuttal. In this, the first episode in the series, I've only gotten the ball rolling, really. I've set out the most traditional and familiar form of dualism, uh, Cartesian, Platonic dualism, the dominant form of dualism held in the Christian thinking world over the last couple of millennia, and I've outlined a few of the main arguments for it, and I've pretty obviously given the impression that I don't buy it. In the next episode, you can expect this between a week and ten days from now while the ball's still rolling, things, I think, start getting a little more interesting. And I'm sorry if this first one was a little bit dry and lecture-like. I'm going to move away from Cartesian dualism and towards views that I find more believable. I'll introduce emergent dualism, which is a more recent and I think much more plausible version of dualism. Or as I'm going to suggest, actually it's a version of physicalism that's got some things in common with dualism. And I'll discuss the issue of post-mortem survival or you know, life after death from an emergentist point of view and where I think it actually gets into some trouble, which is an important question from the standpoint of Christian theology. And then in the next episode, I'll look at physicalist perspectives, including some that I think just might be true, and some that are borderline loony bin material. And after that, I'm going to move on to the issue that first got me thinking about philosophy of mind in the first place, namely what the field of biblical studies has to say on the issue of human nature. Alright, we've got something new in episode 26, something new, somebody emailed me a phone call. Now, I always tell people, both in the podcast and in the blog, that you're welcome to send me feedback by email so that I can discuss it on the show, but one thing you can also do is send me an audio clip. Now, record yourself and send it to me as an MP3 or a WAV file, and like that guy whose name I forget in the movie Young Guns, I'll make you famous. This time on the other end of the line, we've got Joe Johnson. Yellow. Hey Glenn, this is Joe Johnson from Ellensburg, Washington. I'm a co-host of my own podcast called Watching Theology and uh, enjoy listening to you by podcast here in the States. Thank you, Joe. It's a pleasure to have you with us. I, I wanted to quickly say how much I appreciate the program and what the work that you're doing, and especially the presuppositional series and the annihilation series, both ones that I'm revisiting, uh, well, re-revisiting, again, making sure I'm catching all the arguments and all the uh, items that you're discussing in them that really have been helpful and informative. I wanted to talk briefly about episode 25, your Stop Being a Christian episode, and say how uh, I'm glad you actually did this show. And you cited Justin Martyr, and that was really important to me. It reminded me of a classic divide in early church history between Martyr and uh, Tertullian, who basically saw no truth in anything unless it was fully formed, baptized. Christian theology, and how I've always kind of sided with Justin Martyr on that event. That, and, and I think the Reformers did as well when they really stressed the idea of vocation, that whatever we're called to do, uh, that is something we're supposed to do. 
uh, Christians are supposed to do the utmost of their ability. If they're a shoemaker, be the best shoemaker. And I think that's true of, of the arts. And I know your argument, you're really concerned more with scholarship, uh, but I, uh, the arts is what really struck me. And I, I think of my favorite authors, and, and not all many of them are really Christian, although probably my top two are. But in music, that's a place where I would go back and forth into, I think you used the right word, the Christian ghetto. Every every two or three years, I'd go into this cycle where I'd revisit Christian music, trying to find something meaningful in there. And uh, then I'd feel guilty when I came back out empty and malnourished and having to go back towards, quote, secular music. Right. And... I just think there are some remarkable musicians, uh, both in the both non-Christian and Christian musicians who are doing remarkable work. And you went down toward the uh, the harder track. I wanted to point out there are a few independent artists that have decided that they would s- sing explicitly Christian music when it was appropriate to the song, when they felt like doing it, but they didn't feel conformed into that, where the, the need to make every song some kind of Christian application or Christian symbol. Sure. And, and, of course, that ridiculous example used of Skillet, Saturn Has a Ring About. <laughs> I remember when that sound came out, and I asked everybody who was saying how great it was, what the hell does this mean? Mm. Uh, what does this have to do with anything? But I, I, I can think of, of people working on a lighter you know, side, not quite your Megadeth striper side, but people like Sufjan Stevens, uh, Danielson family, uh, David Bazan of Pedro the Lion. There are a number of independent artists that have decided that they will be, they are Christian. They weren't going to divorce their Christianity from their music, music, but they would do meaningful art. And, and I really think that is, that is something that uh, every one of us can applaud. And it also produces much more authentic, much more honest work. And, and I think that is, I think, the call of creation, uh, if we're going to espouse a natural theology. Like, I, I think you're really promoting there. So uh, I know this was a little bit long, but I thought instead of writing it all up, I'd give you an audio clip and just want to say keep on doing the show and enjoying your work here from the United States. Bye. Thank you, Joe. And feel free to follow in Joe's footsteps if you like. Hey, if it's good enough for Technorama to fake telephone calls by playing audio clips that they've received by email, it's good enough for me. Just drop me a line, podcast at beretta-online.com. Uh, I mean, you can still send me you know, written feedback on on the podcast sorry on the on the blog page or at my contact page at beretta-online.com and click on email me i think it says email me i forget could say contact me or like joe send me an audio clip and you get to air your views on the show and it's like you're here with me i can even fake responses just to make it look natural this is glenn people signing off from episode 26 next time i'll be continuing the series In Search of the Soul, looking at various solutions to the mind-body problem, um, always with, with a particular interest as a philosopher and a theologian who is a Christian, uh, looking at it from that angle, and finally we'll be summing up the series from a biblical point of view. Uh, but until next time, which will be in about seven to ten days, this is Glenn signing off another episode of... Say hello to my little friend!